Okay, the Shabbos will have the privilege of reading Parshas Va'era and continuing the uh, incredible story that we've been following or that began last week. Sefer Shemos, as we discussed, the transition from the story of our nuclear family, of the idea of forming a family into transitioning into a people and the birth of a people. And I would say the birth pangs of birthing a people. Because like childbirth, it doesn't come easily or smoothly, but it is associated with pain and with uh, travail. And similarly here, Moshe, who so to say is the mother of the Jewish people, suffers. It's, uh, they're incorrigible. It's very difficult to help give birth to this nation, some of whom, as we'll see, are very abstinent. They don't want to be born. They're comfortable where they are, not recognizing that there could be a brighter and a better future. So as always, we'll give a brief overview of the Parsha and then delve into the specific Pesukim <clears throat> that, that we want to look at this morning. So to begin with... We, yeah, well, the overview is the entire Parsha that begins on page 318 in the stone Chumash. But uh, we last left off last week with the Jewish people complained to Moshe and Aaron, what happened? You came here, you told us you're going to be our Savior. What's going on? Nothing's different. And Moshe himself in turn complains to Hashem. You made me a promise. This isn't going so easy. What's going on here? And the uh, curtain rises on the next uh, scene, which is our Parsha. And it begins with the Kodesh Baruch Hu's response to Moshe. Moshe had been complaining, so God turns to him and he says, Relax. You know what? I dealt with your forefathers. I showed myself to Avram, to Yitzchak, and to Yaakov. But my name, Hashem, I did not make myself known to them. Which is not our part for today. You have to understand what does that mean? To not have known, to have concealed a name from them. What does it mean to Vaira I appeared to them? But Shmi Lonodati Lahem. But my name I held back. What does it mean to appear but yet to hold back a name? But God says I upheld the bris, and so on and so forth. And we have here the famous four expressions of Geula. The Dal of the Shonos Shal Geula, which according to at least one understanding, forms the basis of the Dalit Kosos, the four cups of wine that we drink at the uh, at the Pesach Center. Someone was texting me last night. They've agreed to go with family for all of Pesach to a certain place. It's very difficult. They struggle with their family. They don't know how they're going to get through it. I said, that's why the rabbis made us let us have four cups of wine at the Seder. You know? said, you're going to put the whole family in a room for a few hours? Everyone drink a little bit of wine. Relax, you'll get through it. They'll figure out a way to still be talking to each other at the end. So, the four Lashonos of Geula, the four cups of wine. Of course, there is a hint. The Tzalti, a fifth Lashon of Geula, a fifth language of redemption, which some say is the source of a fifth cup, namely the cup of Eliyahu Anavi. I think my first Shabbos Hagalod, Joshua, when I became the rabbi, was about the Koshel Eliyahu Anavi, which is a fascinating, there's a halachic background to it. Some suggest the, the development of the Kos of Eliyahu came because... The, there's a concept called Yain Pogum that once you uh, sip from wine it cannot be used again in the context of uh, ceremony in the context of a ritual we, halachically paskin, you could get around it by adding some new wine so even though there's wine remaining in the cup from the last of the Dalit Kosos as long as you contribute and add more wine it's not considered Pogum but there are some opinions the debate in the Gemara and in Halacha that no, any remainder needs to be emptied so some say the origin, there are sources going back to the Rishonim, that there was a vessel in the middle of the table, and whatever was left out of each cup, everybody would dump into the middle, so that they wouldn't have this problem of Yain Pogum. Well, that vessel filled up, and some say that's the origin of the Kosovelio. It became, well, you had this cup of wine, who's going to drink it? What's it for? Uh, Kosovelio. Some say actually Kosovelio, because it was a debate within the Halacha, how do we paskin when it comes to this question of Yain Pogum? And since it was unresolved, the Gemara often leaves a question that is unresolved. The response is, Teku. The Talmud formulates a question, what is the halacha in a certain scenario? And it says, Teku. And Teku, some understand to be an acronym for? Tishbi The Tishbi Elio, Elijah will come. And when he comes, you t- there's a Rebbitzin conference going on. That's why I'm pushing this baby. Baruch Hashem. I'm thrilled. I couldn't be happier. My son, Shmuel Yisrael Nassan Shai, is here with me. The first year I think he's heard me give. But I think that if YU is going to host a Rebbitzin conference, they owe it to the rabbis to send YU students and Stern girls to help them get through the week while the Rebbitzins are away. In any case, so I, you'll excuse me if I'm... Uh, 
pushing this baby in the stroller while we while we learn. So so teku tishpi yitar it's kushe vaabayos elioa navi resolve the questions. So since the the bucket full of wine in the middle of the table was the result of an unresolved halachic debate. It became known as the Kos of Elio. So this is a discussion. But in any case, at the beginning of our parsha, we have the Dal, the Shonas of Geula, the four languages, the four expressions of redemption. And then we continue. So Hashem speaks to um, Paro and he tells him, you need to, uh, Hashem tells Moshe, you need to go speak to Paro, the king of Egypt. Interesting, and this we talked about last year at length. Daber Paro Melech Mitzrayim. Why didn't God just say Daber Paro? Rashi already notes. What do you mean, El Paro Melech Mitzrayim? Tziva alav lachlok lo kavod bedivrayim. Because God said, I don't care that Paro is drowning Jewish boys. I don't care that Paro is a murderer. He's a tyrant. He's a disgusting, a horrible leader. I don't care who he is, Paro, but the position deserves honor because he's a king. And therefore, God tells Moshe, make sure you bestow kavod, honor, to the position of Paro, even if not the man. We spoke about last year at length, this is a very important model for us, that Judaism demands that even when we disagree with a particular person's policies, we disagree with an elected official's viewpoint or perspective. We may even see the person as evil, as Moshe undoubtedly saw Paro, but the position itself demands honor, because when we don't give honor to the position, we dishonor ourselves. How can we honor God, the King of Kings, if we can't honor the position of King, or the closest thing we have to it, in this world? And we see there's Rashi's throughout, throughout Chumash that tell us and, and give these examples. We have it in Tanakh as well, Elio and others, that, um, that bestow honor to people for their position, even if they themselves are undeserving. Moshe demurs, Moshe hesitates. Again, he says, I have the speech impediment. I have sealed lips, aral, like an aral, who needs a bris. There's Orlas Halev, the heart can be sealed. There's the Arla of the male organ, when the foreskin is there, so that it's sealed, it needs to be removed. And there's the Arla, the, the foreskin of the lips, so to say. When a person feels that they are speechless, they're mute, they can't speak, that was Moshe. Ani Aral Sefasayim, he needed to have a bris of the mouth, the removal of the Arla of the mouth, to give him the capacity for expression, to give him the ability to, to, give him the ability to speak. Um, that's what some I think it's the Sfasemis it says the whole story of Pesach is the, the root of the word Pesach is Pesach it's the story of going from slavery to liberty is giving us our voice giving us our capacity to speak the ability to find expression a slave has no freedom to speak his mind freedom of, of speech is an incredible expression of, of, of freedom of emancipation of liberty we take it for granted we're blessed to live in a country that recognizes and accepts freedom of speech as a basic tenant of our a foundation of the philosophy of our country. But so many countries, so many peoples around the world are denied that. And that's the experience of, of leaving Egypt, says the Sfasemis. It's the story of Pesach, of Pesach. The mouth speaks, the mouth moves. The mouth finds the ability. So not only the story of the Jewish people as a family, but Moshe in particular, who's the Aral Svasayim, who's searching for his voice. Hashem tells Moshe and Aaron, go command the Jewish people in Paro, Lo b'nei Yisrael me'eretz Mitzrayim. And we'll come back and look at these verses more specifically. The uh, Torah then recounts, goes through the Yichus of, uh, of the different tribes of the Jewish people, all in order to arrive at the Yichus of Moshe and Aaron to tell us where they come from, who their parents are. We spoke about last week. This was not done in Shmos. Last week they remained anonymous, ambiguous figures. Bas Levi, the base Levi. Only this week are we given the identity of the parents. And we spoke about uh, Rav Moshe. We spoke about some other suggestions why that might be. The redemption begins. Moshe goes down to talk to Paro and to begin to demand from him to let the people go. And then we begin the plagues, the first plague of blood, and then we have the plague of frogs, lice, and uh, so on and so forth. For the remainder of the, the remainder of the parsha, we get through the first seven of the ten plagues in this week's parsha. There's obviously much to speak about. <coughs> Excuse me. There's much to speak about within each of the plagues, and there's an overarching question with the plague, which we may have time to get to today, and we may not. Which is Ani Akshas Slave Paro. God says, "I will harden Paro's heart." Well, the whole notion of free will and predeterminism. Does man have free will or does God predetermine the course of our action, our destiny, our fate, our lives? 
How could one hold Paro accountable for what he did if God already premeditated that he would harden Paro's heart? How could that be? So if we have time, we'll get to that. A famous comment of the Ramban. But I want to begin... I want to begin... Yes? Well, I don't remember. I don't remember the exact length, but not long. Okay, so let's begin. I believe last week, last year, we got up to um, through Perak te- through Pasuk Test, Perak Vav, chapter six, Pasuk Test, verse nine, which is in the uh, Stone Chumash, the article Stone Chumash, on page. What did I say? Perak Vav, Pasuk Test. Yeah, page three hundred twenty, top of page three twenty. Okay, so I'm going to repeat Perak Tess, Pasuk Tess, even though I think we ended with this last year because it's one of my favorite, most insightful Divrei Torah and Chumash. Moshe communicated thus. He spoke to the Jewish people and transmitted exactly what God said. A message of hope and optimism. Don't worry, I'm coming to liberate you. I'm going to take you out. But they didn't hear Moshe. And why didn't they hear Moshe tells the Torah? What is Kotzeruach? So it literally translates. How does the Torah from this translate it? Shortness of breath. Kotzeruach and Avodah Kasha. The labor, the hard labor. So of course the question is, what do you mean? Me'avodah Kasha... It should just say they didn't hear because they were backbreaking labor. They were working tirelessly. They were exhausted. What is Kotzeruach? Shortness of breath. They had asthma. The entire Jewish people had asthma. Was there an allergic reaction? Was it allergy season in Egypt? What is Kotzeruach? What is shortness of breath? So the translation of shortness of breath that the stone employs comes from Rashi. Rashi says, A person who is anxious, who's tense, who's stressed, begins to breathe quickly. Can't catch their own breath. Think about it. The anxious person has very shallow breathing, very quick breathing. They're not taking deep breaths, which further contributes to their anxiousness and to the challenge that they have. I gave a drush a few months ago about how we've lost the art of savoring. Judaism endorses the art of savoring, living in the moment, of every morsel of food, of every cup of coffee, of every conversation, of enjoying every walk, of living in the moment, of the mindfulness and the consciousness, and that is the core and the root of what halacha is supposed to slow us down in life. Life is moving so fast, halacha is designed to slow us down. And one of the examples I gave is, doctors say today, we breathe way too shallowly and way too quickly. Air is not, oxygen is not getting into the depth of our lungs the way it needs to, and it's very unhealthy for us. It's much healthier to breathe, breathe deeply and breathe slowly. And in fact, it's a technique when one is feeling anxious or stressed, when one is feeling anxiety, to breathe deeply and to breathe slowly. They lack that capacity, says Rashi. Kotzeruach, life is so quick. Get to work, take care, boop, 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 boop. They can't even take a breath. They can't even breathe the breath of life. And that's Kotzeruch. That's Rashi's interpretation. And there's many interpretations here. I don't want to review it. We spoke about it in the past. The Ramban has a pshat, and the Sfarno has a pshat, but it's the Orachayim HaKadosh's pshat, which I find incredible. It says the Orachayim HaKadosh, Kotzeruch, the root of the word Kotzer is Katsar, narrow. Ruach means spirit. It wasn't shallow breathing. It was a narrow spirit. It was a narrow vision. You know what happened? You know why the Jewish people... I mean, imagine it for a second. Jewish people are living in servitude. Their children are being thrown into the river. They're performing back-breaking labor. They're exhausted. And a man comes down and he says to them, a man who indeed was raised in the palace, who's fled, he's been away for a little while, he comes back and he says, gentlemen, ladies, Jewish people, my brothers, my sisters, I have a message of hope, of optimism. I'm here to take you out. God has sent me to a brighter future. Who's with me? And what do they all do? They turn to him and they say, get lost. What are you talking about? Sit down, old man. Be quiet. We're exhausted. So Rashi says, they were exhausted. They couldn't hear. Says the Orchayim, 
You know why they couldn't see a message of hope and optimism of brighter future? Because they had such a narrow vision. They were so caught up in their lives and in the condition that they were living, they couldn't even imagine a better future. They couldn't even imagine a better time. Kotzeruach. They were so narrow in their vision and what they could imagine. We begin to suffer. It's the beginning of the end for man when we lose our imagination. When we lose the capacity to dream. Dreaming is fundamental to our existence. I remember General Effie Etam from the Israeli army spoke here maybe 10, 12 years ago. And he talked about, you know, one of the strategies in the army, if you capture an enemy and you want to get them to release secrets, one of the torture techniques is, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about them, they're legal, not legal, what do I know? But one of the torture techniques is not waterboarding, is denying sleep. If you deny a person sleep long enough, they'll give up and let, let go of the secrets they're supposed to be holding. How does that work? So he explained, I haven't ever checked scientifically if it's true, but he said that it has nothing to do with the lack of sleep physiologically, the inability or the lack of strength or endurance to be able to hold back the secrets. He said, you know what happens when a person doesn't sleep? They don't dream because we dream in our sleep. And when a person can't dream, they give up hope of living and they release the secrets. The reason the technique works, said General F.E.A. Tom, is because man, generic man, needs to dream to live, needs to hope to live. And Kutzeruach, when we're so narrow, when we give up that hope, we can't even hear a message of hope. Even when someone is in our vicinity, even when someone is in our sphere of influence, and they have a message of hope, of change, of a brighter future, of optimism, we reject it. We ignore it. We dismiss it. Because Kotzeruach, we're so narrow, we're so caught up in, in what things are and how they are that we can't even imagine something better. There's a great book I've recommended before. I really wanted to get through some psukim here. But there's a great book that I've recommended before. It's called The Survivor's Club. The author's name is escaping me at the moment. It's a great book. It's, a scholar, it, it's written by a researcher who wanted to know why are some people predisposed to survive more than others? Terrorist event, an airplane crash, cancer, the Holocaust. Why do some survive and others don't? So he sought out on this journey to research and to identify what are the characteristics or the profile of a survivor. Why are some more predisposed to survive than others? And there's fascinating insights about all kinds of scenarios that you can learn from. For example, does anyone know where is the best place on the planet Earth to have a cardiac arrest? Where's the best place to have a heart attack? Not in the hospital. You will not be noticed in the hospital if you have a drop of a heart attack. Where is the best place in the world to have a heart attack? He says in his book, it is a... The response rate. In other words, again, he tracked the statistics. If you have cardiac arrest, if you have a heart attack in this place, you have a much higher chance of survival, ten times higher chance than anywhere else. It's a casino. Why? Why? Because he says, in a casino... There are cameras on every table and every one at all times of the room people full of people watching them. And in a casino, the moment a person drops, they're attended to, whereas every other place... Anyway, it's a fascinating book. In the beginning of the book... Actually, the book quotes a lot of research of our own Rabbi Nechassi Yehuda's daughter who did a lot of research in uh, second generation uh, Holocaust survivors. But, and the book quotes it extensively. So he says in the beginning of the book, he's a Jew, I forgot the author's name, he, he describes himself as an agnostic. And uh, he begins the, the book that way, in his preface. But by the end of the book he says, what does he identify as the characteristic that will predispose someone towards survival? The most important characteristic for survival is faith. Faith. He says not necessarily because when you have faith, the God in whom you have faith will answer. But if you have faith, then you still have hope. And without hope, you'll never survive. Hope is what gives the strength, the resolve, the tenacity, the capacity to survive. And the moment you give up hope, the moment you lose your chance of surviving. And therefore he develops this idea that he's going to start praying every day, even though he doesn't necessarily believe that there's a God. But the exercise of prayer and the exercise of faith is a, a core characteristic to have if you hope to survive. So it says the Orachayim, Kotzeruach, if your vision is too narrow, Kotzer, you lose faith, you give up hope, you don't believe things could be better, then you're not willing to listen, even when a messenger, 
even when a Moshe Rabbeinu comes to herald in an era of redemption. Okay, we begin. Now really where we wanted to start. It's 9.30, so it's about time we begin. Pasuk Yud. Paragvav chapter 6. Pasuk Yud. Verse number 10. Come speak to Paro, the king of Egypt, to send the Jewish people from his land. Well, first of all, what should it have said? Maybe without Lamor. Okay, but, and the, uh, the Ramban deals with that. The Ramban is bothered like Alex. Speak to Right, Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Amr HaMaforshim says the Ramban quoting the Radak, Ki milas leimor Torah leimor liyisrael. Whenever it says leimor, God spoke to Moshe saying, it meant communicated to the Jewish people. As an aside, the Gemara says, why does it need to say leimor? That was God giving Moshe permission to repeat it. Unless you're explicitly given permission to repeat something, the default is, it should be held in confidence. Now, which is the default? When someone tells you something, is the assumption, unless they tell you, don't tell anyone, you can? Or is the assumption, unless they tell you, feel free to share it, you can't? Which is the default? Which is the assumption? So the Talmud tells us the assumption is you can't. And that's why God said to Moshe, lay more, I'm giving you permission, what I'm confiding in you, share it. You're free to tell. But here it says, Lemur is usually directed at Lemur to the Jewish people. Here the Lemur is, Moshe is told to tell, to communicate, to transmit it to? Paro. Paro. The Ramban goes on. We don't have time here. You can look at it on your own. But he notes that this Lemur is different than all others. This is a Lemur for for. Uh, paro. But I'm bothered by a different word. Bo daber al paro. What do you mean bo? Leich daber al paro. Go speak to paro. What do you mean bo? Come speak to paro. Similarly, the beginning of next week's parsha. That's indeed the beginning and name. Bo el paro. Next week's parsha begins bo. Come. What do you mean come? Is God in Mitzrayim? God speaking to Moshe should say, Leich. Say, go. Go speak to paro. What does it mean? What do you see? Hashem says, Come, we're going to Paro. I've sent you on a mission, you're not alone. Never think you're alone. When God says, I've asked you to do something, a holy task, a sacred mission, Bo, come, I'm coming with you. Never feel alone. No, I'm right by your side. We're doing this together. I am going to empower you. I'm going to enable you to succeed. Bo, Come. Vishalacha and Melech Mitzrayim again. Paro is identified. It could be Daber Paro. Yosef, um, Yosef. Moshe certainly knows who Paro is by now. He grew up in his palace. Everyone knows who Paro is. Why does it have to say each time Paro Melech Mitzrayim? Because you wouldn't say, go speak to Bush. Go speak to Obama. No matter what the message you're going to communicate is, it's go speak to President Bush. Go speak to President Obama. And that's what Rashi was telling us. God wants to communicate. When Paro's name is mentioned, God doesn't say, hey, go speak to Obama. Go speak to Bush. Go speak to Clinton. He says, go speak to President. Go speak to Paro. Melech Mitzrayim. Don't leave out the honor and the dignity that's due the office. Pasuk Yibbez. Moshe demurs, he hesitates. What are you talking about? They're going to hear me? There's no way they're going to hear me. Rashi says. My lips are sealed. My lips are sealed. There's no way. There's no way. But let's continue. So much to say about this, but I want to continue. God speaks to Moshe and Aaron. And he says, I want you to go command to the Jewish people and to Paro. And what's the message? I'm taking him out. Now Rashi is bothered, as you should all be. First Rashi says that Pasukid Gimel is the response to Pasukid Beis. Moshe tells God, what are you talking about? They're not going to listen to me. I have a speech impediment. I'm a poor communicator. I can't get the message across. What are you talking about? To which God responds, look at Rashi, Now God directs the command to Moshe and Aaron because God is responding. 
He says to Moshe, you think that you can't effectively communicate? Not to worry. I'm sending you someone to be your mouthpiece. Aaron will communicate. Vayitzavim al Bnei Yisrael. You should be bothered. Vayitzavim is a harsh language. What does Vayitzavim mean? Command. I understand Vayitzavim to Paro. I understand why God needs to say to Moshe and Aaron, demand of Paro, my people are coming out. But who's linked with Paro? Vayitzavim el, speak to? Bnei Yisrael. What do you mean? Command? Go to the slaves and demand of them that they leave. What do you demand of them? You shouldn't have to ask twice. Invite them. Announce to them. Command to them. Vayitzavim. They need a tzivui. They need to be commanded to leave. What's going on here? So Rashi tells us what's going on here. Look at Rashi. Tzivam aleim lanigam benachas v'lesbolosam. Says Rashi, Vayitzavim el b'nei Yisrael is not command to b'nei Yisrael but it's Vayitzavim al about B'nai Yisrael. God is telling Moshe and Aaron how they should behave. Lahan higam to lead them benachas softly, gently v'lizbolosam. What is lizbol? Savlanut. Maza savlanut? Patience. They're about to go down. And God tells Moshe and Aaron you're about to interact with two very difficult groups. You think you only have one difficult mission? Paro may be the easier of the two. You're going to go deal with Paro and with his cabinet, but you also have to deal with the Jewish people. And it's going to demand of you great patience. Vayitzavim el b'nei Yisrael v'yel palo God says, I have a command for you for b'nei Yisrael and a command for you for Paro. The command to you for Paro is... Let my people go. My message to you for the Jewish people, Rashi says, is to deal with them with nachas, with savlanut, The medrash goes even further. The medrash in Shmos Rabbah, Perak Zion, the medrash Zion Gimel, goes even further and says, Hashem told them, my children are stubborn and frustrating you are accepting this position with the knowledge that they might curse you and throw stones at you. That's the Medrash. Moshe and Aram. If you're accepting this mission, mission, know that they may throw stones at you and curse you. Throw stones and curse. They're coming to tell them, I'm taking you out. I'm taking you to a brighter future. But know that it's going to demand great savlanut. The Shlach HaKadosh, Shnei Luchos the Shlach HaKadosh, says from this Rashi, that the key and essential characteristic to be an effective leader of any type, you want to succeed in business, you want to be a good gabai, you want to be a good mother or father, the key to success in leadership is, from this Rashi, savlanut, patience. Hashem wanted Moshe and Aaron to know, before they set out on the mission, it's going to demand great patience and tolerance, and if you can't find it, if you're going to be impatient, it ain't going to work. It's not going to work. Because if you're quick to anger, or to lose your temper, or to get bent out of shape, or to grow impatient, or to lose your top, you cannot act. You cannot hope to lead or influence anyone around you. Indeed, the author of Kelm, Rav Simcha Zissel Ziv, the author of Kelm says that we have to make great efforts to become patient, because the author says also this Rashi that savlanut, savlanus, is the core. It is the root of all positive character traits and ultimately of experiencing serenity. If you want to succeed in every other good character trait, it begins with savlanut. It begins with the capacity for patience. Patience is a necessary ingredient in life. Because every one of us inevitably and invariably finds ourselves in situations where you lose your patience. It could be unexpected traffic when we're on our way to an appointment. It could be someone's supposed to call us and we're waiting for their call. It could be a million and one scenarios that take great patience in life. So why is patience so important? So I'll tell you, I know normally we stick with the Mepharshim in the Mikros Gedolos, but I wanted to tell you outside because I think this is so important and so beautiful. Rosh Shlomo Volba says, Zatzal, the great Mashkiach, Yerushalayim, what's the root of the word Savlanut, of Savlanus? We just saw it in Rashi. Sevel, Lisbol. 
Lisbol. What does the word sovel mean? The word sovel means to carry a heavy load, to bear a burden. How do you know that? The beginning of the parsha. What did God tell Moshe in the beginning of the parsha? Brilliant insight of revolving. He says, "Mitoch, kani Hashem lokechem am posik zayim. Ani Hashem lokechem am motzi eschem mitachas." I am Hashem your God who will take you out of the now I don't understand I'll take you out of the patience of Egypt now what does it mean the burden the weight the load the work says Ravobi you see that Savlanut comes from the word Lisbon and what's the connection says Ravobi a patient person bears the burden or endures the suffering but never reacts with impulsiveness or impetuousness. A patient person bears the burden but never overreacts. Maybe a more accurate translation therefore of savranut is sufferance. A person who's patient can live with suffering, a little discomfort or inconvenience. Wow, thank you so much, Alan. I appreciate it. So a person who's patient can live with sufferance. You know what? So I'm stuck in traffic. You know what? The waiter is not... I need more water. And they're not... You know what? They hadn't called me back. So you know what? I'm sitting here waiting. The other person's not here yet. You know... Okay. Sufferance. Patience means I can live with the discomfort. I can live with the tension. I can bear the burden of whatever is annoying about this moment. A little inconvenience. And that's every single one of us in life. We're going to confront difficulties and challenges. We can't control what happens to us. But we can control how we react. And that says everything about us. We are going to have to be sovel. Every one of us has to be sovel things. We're going to have to bear burdens. The question is, when we are sovel, do we practice savlanut? When we are sovel, do we practice savlanut? And why do most people not? Why do most people struggle and they don't? What's at the root of impatience? And with this we'll get back to the text. But what's at the root of a lack of patience? The ego. Well, why do people lose their patience? Because things don't unfold the way I want them to. I schedule to leave at this time and still to get there on time. And now there's traffic. And now there's a red light that's never changing green. I'm supposed to be... And, and they're not calling me back. Why is my computer, my, my internet... It's downloading pages and it's taking a whole half a second and not millisecond. <laughs> the lack of patience is because it's not going the way I designed, the way I anticipated, the way I want, the way I need. It's all I, 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 I. The capacity to be sovel, the ability to bear a burden with savlanut and to be patient, is the ability to say it's not all about me. There's another plan. It's not what's meant to be. And here's the last thing. When you are impatient, does time move faster or slower? Slower. When we lack patience, time moves much slower, not faster. When you're patient, time moves faster. So think how counterproductive it is. How self-destructive it is. You're sitting there in traffic and you get the kotzer ruach, the shortness of breath, you're slamming the steering wheel. You could barely breathe. You're looking at the clock. You're now going to be late. And is time going to move faster or slower because of the way you're reacting? Slower. It's going to move slower, which will make the experience all the more painful. You'll have to be so veil even more. Whereas if you breathe deeply and you say, you know what? It's not about me. I should have left earlier. I should have anticipated it might happen. And it'll be what it'll be. I'll get there when I get there. But meanwhile, I'm going to listen to a great Parsha class from Rabbi Goldberg. I'm going to turn on the radio. Whatever it is, I'm going to listen to meanwhile. So big deal. So I'll be sovel, and I'll, I have to be sovel. I'll practice savlanut, and that will diminish that much that I'll need to be sovel. The more savlanut, the less you have to be sovel. Sovel is to bear the burden. The less painful it is, the more patience you have. The less patience you have, the more painful it is. So it's paradoxical. But 
Again, that's what Hashem is telling Moshe. God is telling Moshe, be patient, be patient, and, um, and that's how you have to speak to the Jewish people with great patience. I'll tell you, Reb Simcha Bunim, 18th century Hasidish Rebbe, Reb Simcha Bunim of Peshischa, says that's the context of this Rashi within the Pesukah. In the first phrase, Hashem is charging the two brothers to bring a message of hope and optimism and salvation to B'nai Israel. The second half of the sentence, the leaders are told to confront and challenge the leader of the world, Paro. These are two distinct missions with two very different messages. So, the first message is to the Jewish people, which is, or to the manner in which they interact with the Jewish people, which is namely to have a lot of, to have a lot of patience with them. The second message is for Paro, which is, let my people go. Let my people go. Okay, let's go weiter. Somebody had a question? Comment? Rebuttal? Yes. Just a comment. Isn't, doesn't that show a lack in trust in the Abraham? Yeah, when you get impatient, you lack trust that this is what's meant to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it takes, it takes a lot of effort to breathe deeply and to remember that in those moments where it's so easy to lose one's sense of self to stay present in the moment, breathe deeply and realize it's not going to help anything other than make prolong the pain and the agony. It'll take even, it'll take even longer. Okay, let's keep going. Um, Torah now is going to delineate the yichus of the different leaders of the Jewish people. Why are we doing this here? Didn't we do this already? the beginning of Parsha Shmos, the end of Parsha Zvayichi, and here we go again. Now we need to know who Ruvain's offspring and progeny are, who Shimon's offspring and progeny are. What are we doing this again for? So Rashi tells us, Since we are going to arrive at who Moshe and Aaron are, Moshe and Aaron are about to descend into Egypt, we should know a little bit about their resume. We should know a little bit about where they come from. And once we're going to spell out where they come from, it would be only appropriate to remember where everyone else comes from. And that's where Rashi says what's going on here, why we're taking this step back. The Orachayim HaKadosh gives a different reason. It says, The this is Moshe's coronation. Moshe's ascension to royalty. We think that Shaul Amelech was the first king, David Amelech is the Davidic dynasty, but here Moshe serves almost as a king. And you can't be a king like you can't. My oldest daughter was born in Israel. Rachel was born in Shari Tzadik in Yerushalayim. And she, when she was a young girl in school and learned in civics that you're not allowed to be the president of the United States of America unless you were born in America. She was a little girl. She was very upset. She wanted to write a letter. She asked me who she could write it to. She was very upset. If you're an American citizen, why can't you be president just because you happen to not be born on this soil? So the Orachim says, Jewish people have a similar tradition. If you can't trace your lineage back to Yaakov Avinu, you can't be, can't be a Jewish king. A convert can't be a Jewish king. You have to be able to trace your lineage back. So that's what, Moshe, that's what the Torah is doing here, says the Orachayim. Moshe is about to be coronated king, effectively, the leader of the people. So in order to, it's kind of to, to make sure that there are no birthers who challenge Moshe's yichus to say, who are you to be king? You were born in Hawaii. What do you do? You were born, uh, you were born uh, outside of wherever you were born. You can't be the king. So therefore, the Torah now presents Moshe's birth certificate to resolve any doubt Here's Moshe's birth certificate. Here's where he comes from. Back to Yaakov Avinu. That's the pshat of the Orachayim Hakadosh. Ramban has an interpretation here. Ramban says, Torah wants to really talk about Levi. That's who Moshe descends from. But it's inappropriate to speak about Levi. Levi is the third. He has two older brothers. So before you get to Levi, you're first introduced to Reuven and Shimon. The Kliyakar gives another interpretation, a fourth interpretation. Says the Kliyakar, and I share it only because those who are learning the Dafyomi came upon this recently, about a week ago. 
God wanted to give the Torah in a triple fashion. There's a debate among the Rishonim and the Achronim what does triple fashion mean? Third chronologically or things that have the theme of the number three? It's a machlokas. Ben Yehoyada, everybody weighs in on it, the Maral and others. But according to many, what it means three is he gave us a triple Torah. Torah, Nevi'im, and Ksuvim. And he gave it to us through, everything he says is, is through the number three. In the third this, at the third place, on the third that, in the third way, the third month, the third. So the third through the third tribe. Levi is the third tribe. Ruven, Shimon, Levi. And that's what the Torah is telling us here. Through the Shevet Meshulash, the third try. Harbe Mine Shilush. Akein Hitzchel Livdok, Barashi Beis Avosam, Umatzeruvein, Arba Mishpachos, Shimon, Chamesh Mishpachos, Valevi, Shalosh Mishpachos. Levi had three families, because everything about the giving of the Torah is brought to you by the number three. So, if you learn the daf, look at the rest of this Kliyakar, he develops the idea of the number three. But weiter. Let's just read quickly through these names. Now we get up to Levi. Amram takes Yocheved to be his wife. Vatelud lo is Aaron. There's Moshe. They have Moshe and they have Aaron. What happened to Miriam? Ushnei chaye Amram sheva ushloshim ma'ashana. Amram Moshe's father. Again, whose identity is only first revealed here, not last week. And last week he was just Bas Levi to Bas Levi. So he lived 137 years. Uvenei Yitzchak Korach v'Nefesh v'Zichri v'Nei Uziel Mishav Altsaf v'Sisri. Not names we find babies named often today. Vayikach Aaron is Elisheva Bas Aminadav. Aaron marries Elisheva. Now, that's unusual. Here we're listing all the lineage, and we're listing it in a linear fashion. Who the father is. Now we're taking a little detour, because Elisheva is identified to us how? She's the daughter of Aminadav, who is the sister of Nachshon. They have four sons, Nadav and Avio, Elazar and Isamar. Now, Rashi is bothered as you should be too. Everyone else is identified by their parent. Why is Elisheva identified by her brother, Nachshon ben Aminadav? Says Rashi, When you get married, it's quoting the Gemara in Bab Basra, Kofiud, when someone gets married, if you want to know about the girl, who do you look at? Her brothers. If you want to know about a girl, you check out her brothers. So, and where do you learn that from? Says the Gemara, Rashi quoting, Our Pasuk, we are saying everything about, you want to know about Elisheva? Was she worthy to be Aaron's wife? You want to know about her? She's Nachshon's sister. She's got some Nachshon in her. She's good. Maybe, the, maybe if you want to know about the boys, you look at the sisters. Is it a rule in siblings? Is it a rule specifically in look at the brother? We'll leave that for a, another time. Okay, weiter. The Sifsei Chachamim, by the way, on this Rashi points out, In the case of Lavan, that marriage never would have taken place if they looked at Lavan. Lavan was the brother of Rivka. Eliezer would have never betrothed Yitzchak to Rivka had he looked at Lavan revealing. So here the Sifsei Chachamim deals with that. So it wasn't mentioned over there, this rule, because in that case, it was the shvach of Rivka that she overcame the influence of her brother. Despite who her brother was, she emerges a tzaddikis, a righteous woman. So now why are we quoting all of this? To get to what we're about to get to. Oh no. He's got to eat, 10 o'clock. Okay, give me two more minutes, buddy. Give me two more minutes. Two more minutes. Um, Elazar Aaron's son takes a wife and provides a grandson Pinchas this is Moshe and Aaron this is Aaron and Moshe let me be accurate Who are, this is in other words 
We've now gone through the whole lineage to say we've arrived at who are this is the Aaron and Moshe I was telling you about. Right? It's as if Torah is telling us the whole story. God chooses Moshe and Aaron. We take a detour. One second. Moshe and Aaron. Oh, you grew up with them in Jersey City. You know them from Newark. You know, you know the aunt is this and the uncle is that and the grandfather was this one. And remember, they went to school with grandpa. And, that. and that's the one I'm telling you about. Who Aaron and Moshe? Asher Amar Hashem lahem otzios b'nei Yisrael meretz Mitzrayim al tzivosam. Heim amadabrim al paro melech Mitzrayim. They're the ones who are going to speak to paro. By the way, again, melech Mitzrayim. That's Moshe and Aaron. A lot of redundancy, a lot of repetitiveness, and a lot of incongruity. A switcheroo. Because what does it begin with? Who Aaron or Moshe? It begins with, this is Aaron and Moshe. And how does it end with? Who? Who Moshe and Aaron. So which is it? So which is it? So look at Rashi Chavav. Says Rashi, the Torah is trying to get us to say, the Aaron and Moshe I've been telling you about, this is them. This is where they come from, where they descend from. Some places where the Torah reports Aaron before Moshe, which is chronologically accurate. And other places where Moshe is first. Why? To teach us that they're equal. That they're equal. Don't think that one is greater than the other to teach us that they are equal. To teach us that they're equal. The Rashi then on who Moshe Viyar on Pasuk Chavzayin notes the switch also. Who Moshe, this is the Moshe Naron who have been righteous and holy from the beginning until the end. From the beginning until the end. Now there's a lot to say here. The Kliyakar the Svarna, the Rashbam, everybody has something to say here about the switch of the order, about everything going on. But let me just share with you briefly some quick thoughts. The Be'er Ma'im Chaim, Sefer Be'er Ma'im Chaim says, the text is trying to testify something else. Not just that they're equal, but that they are the same. They're consistent. Sheshkulin Ke'echad means, or like Rashi says, Mitchila Vi'ad Sof. You see, some people rise to greatness and they forget their humble beginnings. They forget where they're from. It goes to their head. They become arrogant, egotistical, narcissistic. They go on a power trip. They forget where they came from. Who Moshe Who Aaron Moshe? Who Moshe Aaron? Mitchila Viatsov says the Ber Ma'im Chaim. Regardless of the thrill of acting as God's direct agents in confronting the most powerful human alive in His palace, who Moshe Aaron? They remain unchanged. They're the same Moshe and Aaron from the neighborhood. They're the same ones we remember as kids. They're the same Moshe and Aaron who are humble and righteous and noble and virtuous. They remain the same people they were beforehand. None of the fame, prominence, or notoriety went to their heads. But what remains is the inconsistency in the order. As I pointed out, and Rashi says, Sheshkulin ke'echad. So this was the word that I wanted to tell you from Rasim Chabunma Peshischa. He says, the great 18th century Hasidic master, he says, look at the context of the passage. How did we begin the way we began the class this morning? God tells him, Vayitzavim el b'nei Yisrael v'el paro melech mitzrayim. Vayitzavim el b'nei Yisrael v'el paro melech mitzrayim. There's two tzivus. There's two commandments going on. One, Hashem charges the brothers to bring a message of hope and optimism to the children of Israel. And the second half of the sentence, of the, sentence the two great leaders are told to confront the challenge and to challenge the leader of the world, Paro. Says Rav Simcha Bunim, these are two distinct missions. They overlap, they sound similar, but these are two distinct missions. And you can't deliver, you can't deliver the same message to multiple audiences. To be effective, to get results, one has to taper the message to the intended audience. Deliver it in a manner that it could be heard, it could be absorbed, appreciated, and ultimately that it will be effective. So what happens? What's going on here? After centuries of servitude, persecution, and oppression, Jewish people are embittered. They're disaffected. They're disillusioned. So what's the message that they're capable of hearing? Could Moshe have spoken to them? How would they have looked at Moshe? Moshe was an outsider. Where did Moshe grow up? He grew up in the palace. You grew up in the den of the enemy. You grew up in the home of the one who is oppressing us. You haven't endured one whip. You haven't endured having to build one pyramid. You haven't lifted one brick. 
And you're going to come talk to us as if you know where we're at? As if you know what we're going through? As if you can identify with how we feel? So who can communicate the message to the people, the Be'el B'nai Yisrael? So there's a Simcha Bunim, they needed an Aram. Aaron had suffered with them. He had experienced the Egyptian bondage firsthand. He could share their pain in the most profound way. Aaron was patient and gentle and loving and was exactly what they needed. They couldn't relate to Moshe. His message of redemption came from the outside. He was an outsider. Moshe was a newbie. He had yet to prove himself. Aaron was one of them. Aaron had their complete trust. So Hashem understood that Aaron was necessary to communicate the message, the Vaitzavim al Bnei Yisrael. What about Taparo? Second half of the Pasuk. Second half of the mission. Who was the right one to Vaitzavim al Paro Melech Mitzrayim? Would Aaron be effective? Two brothers march in. Aaron's a member of the slave nation, beaten down, oppressed. Where would he find the courage to look the president, the king in the eyes, and demand of a tyrannical leader, let my people go? For this mission, who was positioned? Moshe. Moshe, after all, felt very comfortable in that palace. Moshe felt very at home. Moshe grew up there. He played on that floor. He ate in that dining room. He knew the ins and outs of the palace and its staff. He would have the confidence. He would have the familiarity. He would have the fearlessness to confront Paro. And that's why Moshe tells him. So with this background, of Simcha Bunim says, that's Pshat in this Rashi. Rashi says, It teaches us that they were equal. Says Rabsim Chabunim, what do you mean? Not just that they were equal, Moshe and Aaron. Because one could ask, were they equal? Is it not one of the 13 principles of faith to believe that Moshe is unequaled? How could you say Shkulun Ke'echad? Isn't that heresy? It's Kvira. One of the Yid Gimli Karim of the Rambam is to believe that there was never a Navi like Moshe. How could you say Shkulun Ke'echad? Says Rav Simcha Bunim, Shkulun Ke'echad is not the people. Moshe and Aaron are not equal. You know what Shkulun Ke'echad? The methodology and the message. Sometimes you need an Aaron, soft, compassion, having been there, identify with, empathy. And other times you need a Moshe, confident, authoritative, demanding justice, standing on principle. Sometimes you need Aaron, gentle, kind, a friend, a peer. And sometimes you need a Moshe, making demands. And says Rav Simcha Bunim, that's what it means, the two messages are equal, it depends on the audience to whom you're directing them. It depends on the child to whom you're directing. Each circumstance is different, and so you have the two psukim, you have the two recipients rather, Vayitzavim El B'nei Yisrael and Paro Melech Mitzrayim. We're going to have to stop here. There's a fantastic class taking place right now on the Haftorah, the Navi Yechezko. Is it Yechezko? Yechezko. Right here, right now. Grab a coffee in the back and have a fantastic week.